Morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. It is a Psalm Sunday, so we're going to have a few of the kids still in here. Um, I think some of them still go, so I should learn this stuff. What, who goes in and out? Of... If you have uh, your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Psalms, book of Psalms. Psalm 15 is where we'll be this morning. Give you a second to turn there. As I say quite often, if, if you have a Bible, physical Bible, it's, it's good to get it out and to, and to be there in the, in the book yourself. We do have it up on the screen most of the time, but there's just something, there's just something about having the Bible that, that matters to us. It's, Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, and who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put his money out at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your spirit that teaches and directs. And illuminates for us what it means in life and in our actions and just in our day-to-day what it, what it means for us to be followers of Christ. Fill us today, Lord, with a desire to seek after righteousness. As Paul says, to make it our own. Because you have first made us your own. Through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, today is a Psalm Sunday, as Wes mentioned. We've made this our pattern for, for a little while, where we pause in whatever series we're we're going through and we turn to the Psalms and, and we observe what I've been what I've been saying. We observe the heart of the worshiper. The heart of the worshiper. And one of the reasons why I say that as we turn to the Psalms is because I think that best represents for us how we should approach the Psalms. Understanding that what we're doing is we're not we're not receiving teaching like we would in Philippians, but are rather uh, observing somebody else's heart towards the Lord 
and how they respond to various life situations and circumstances in response in what we would call worship of God. I say often, maybe for some too often, uh, that, that we need to pay attention to what place of Scripture we're reading from uh, because it matters where we're at in relation to how we should then read that particular section. I mentioned just, just a second ago that we read Philippians different than we would read the Psalms. Philippians is a letter in the New Testament where, where Paul is, is quite, quite directly teaching the people in, at Philippi. He's writing to a specific group of people for a specific reason at a specific time. And, and he's directly teaching them. Whereas when you get into the Old Testament, namely in the Psalms, there isn't direct teaching, not, not at least at its, at its core, at its purpose. Maybe we could turn to Psalm 150 and we read things like praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. These, these sound like commands or teachings, but that's not, that's not the purpose of Psalm 150. The purpose of Psalm 150 is the emotion. The purpose of all the Psalms is primarily the emotion. And so let's just just for a very brief minute here, let's back up and let's think about think about how we should work our way down to this smaller, this smaller place in Psalm 15. We think about the Bible. The Bible is completely unique in that it's the only book uh, that we as as Christians believe is the inspired word of God. And what we mean when we say that is as we as we turn to the Bible, as we read the Bible. Something is, is inherently different about this book than any other book that we could read. And one of the things that we mean when we say that is that we believe that as we read this, with maybe an open heart and an open mind, we believe that the Spirit of God is actually teaching us through this book every time we come to it. Now, I said with an open heart and an open mind, I can come to the Bible and I can, I can make it say whatever I want because it's, it's big and there's a lot of things said in here. And I can twist things. And I'm not. And when I'm doing that, I'm kind of coming in in a way that's blocking the spirit from being able to do its job. You know, I could say, "Oh, I want to hate my neighbor," right? As an example, I want to hate my neighbor, and I could go into you know, First Samuel or Second Samuel and talk about how the, how God calls the people of Israel to to fight against the Philistines, who are the Israelites' neighbors, and and my neighbors are Philistines too, and they're they're and and I could try to justify, but that's not what the Bible is saying, right? And I think I think most of us would recognize that that's it's not actually reading the Bible that's making the Bible say what I want it to say. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm coming to Scripture and I desire for it to teach me, when I desire for it to teach me, the Spirit of God is speaking to me in a unique way. You know, and it's different even than, than if somebody would be writing about the Bible. Right? Spurgeon's, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he talks, he, he writes a, a number of volumes on the psalm. He calls it the Treasury of David, David and he writes about Psalm 15 in, in, in particular. And we could read that, and there's value there. And the Spirit of God is going is to be there and teach us, but not in the same way. There is, a, there is a difference. It's a unique thing. But then there's also the difference between the Old and the New Testament. In the New Testament, we, we assume or we understand that every writer in the New Testament knows the full picture of what God is doing in, his, in the history of salvation. Even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers who are telling the story of Jesus' life and ministry before the cross, we understand or we, we, we recognize that they're writing in light of the full story, in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Again, even though they're writing about things that happened before this. And so we don't really need to do anything more uh, to, to understand the fullness of who God is in order to understand the passage. But we do need to do this in the Old Testament. We need to read the Old Testament, not as the Jews would read the Old Testament today, as a book that's going to teach me about morality and righteousness and things of that nature, but, but rather as, as something that we should, we should see in, in light of the New Testament and the message of Jesus on the cross. And one of the things that happens with that is there's a maybe perhaps a development or, or almost a change about how we should understand a passage in the Old Testament because of the New Testament. And one of the easiest ones to point to is the atonement sacrifice in the book of Leviticus, where the people of Israel, they're supposed to gather together once a year. They're going to come together and they're going to they're going to in in essence or or in uh, symbolic practice are going to place all of the sins of the people of Israel onto the sacrificial lamb, and then that lamb is going to be sacrificed, and that is going to be the the the, the price paid to basically bring them back into a relationship with the Lord. And we could read that as as if it's a sacrifice that we should make today, but because of the New Testament, we we now recognize that that Old Testament. Uh, you know, atonement sacrifice has a new meaning in light of the cross of Christ. We recognize that the cross of Christ is the thing that the sacrifice, the atonement sacrifice was actually representing. It was almost a placeholder until Christ would come. And it has its power and its weight and its, and its usefulness in the cross of Christ, not in itself. And so as we examine the Old Testament, we need to do so in, in light of the New Testament. And that will... That will play a factor, I think, in today's passage in, in Psalm 15. I already said that the Psalms are, are different from, from Philippians, and, and the biggest reason why they're different from Philippians is because it's poetry. Poetry is, is different than storytelling. It doesn't have the same purpose. It doesn't have the same logic or reason. And while there are places in the Psalms where there's maybe a historical event being recounted, the purpose of the psalm that recounts the historical event or events is not meant to be a historic record. It's meant to drive us to the emotions felt, perhaps, in that historic event. It's the same thing that I, that I was talking about in Psalm 150. While Psalm 150 is calling us to praise and worship God, as we go through that, to praise and worship God through instrumentation, through symbols and loud clashing symbols and all these wonderful, wonderful other instruments that we're supposed to do. We're, we're kind of commanded to do It's not about the command to worship God. There's plenty of other places in Scripture that does that. But it's about the emotion that is connected to that action that we're called to. So the Psalms are primarily about this emotional understanding. We, we, I think we do an injustice whenever we try to say that worship of God is not emotional. It absolutely is emotional. Now, we shouldn't conjure emotion. We shouldn't try to create emotion whenever, whenever a real connection, a real relationship isn't there. But emotion is still part of it. We are emotional beings by God's design. And so we turn to Psalm 15. We turn to Psalm 15 and we take that into consideration as we read it. The very first thing that we come to is this question. And, 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 and Psalm 115 is structured very, very easily, I think. We have, we have this question that David, who is our author, David writes to the Lord. Writes this question to the Lord, and, and it's almost a rhetorical question, but David is going to answer it. So it's so it's not necessarily a rhetorical question, but 
it seems rhetorical in its initial statement, like we should assume to know the answer. He says, he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now I'm going to make a, I'm going to make an exaggerated point that I don't think necessarily needs to be made, but I want to make it anyway. We don't take the Psalms literally, right? We don't take the Psalms literally. And so what, what's happening in this verse is not, it's not David's question on, on where should I go and, and, and do a quiet time on, in a tent on a mountainside in southern Ohio. Right? He's, not, he's not suggesting that. And I don't think anybody thinks that. But we, ta- we have to recognize that David is speaking in images and in, and in pictures. And so what David is actually saying here is, who, who shall sojourn in your tent? To live in a tent with somebody was an intimate thing. Right? Tents are smaller than our homes. I don't know if I've ever seen a tent that comes even close to the size of, of even the smallest house you've ever seen, right? We recognize that it's a smaller quarters. It's, it's, it's closer. You don't, have, you don't have that room and freedom. I mean, you probably don't own a tent, and they certainly didn't own tents that had multiple rooms that you could go and find your own kind of quiet place. No, to dwell in a tent with the Lord means, means a, a personal, an intimate relationship, a close, a dear relationship with the Lord. David's like, who can, who can be? In this close, dear relationship with you, God. And in Hebrew poetry, it's predominantly parallelism, and so there's this repetition. Sometimes there's repetition that kind of exaggerates the point, but this is almost direct repetition. He says, Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Your holy hill being being Jerusalem or, or, or the city of Zion, where the temple is. And for David and, and the ancient and the ancient people of Israel, they believed that God was quite literally in the temple. Right? We understand that God is everywhere. He's, he's everywhere. He's not fixed in this finite location like we are. But, but for David and for the people of Israel, they believe that like the Ark of the Covenant that's in the Holy of Holies was actually where God sat. It was his throne. And so he's like, who can be with you, Lord? Who can, who can physically be with you? I think this is a question that, these are questions, I guess there's two of them. These are questions that we, that we ask in response to what we've been talking about in Philippians chapter 3. As we recognize that it's not of me and not of my flesh that I am justified, that it's the work of Christ and it's only the work of Christ and, and it's, it's God's righteousness that is being bestowed upon me because of Christ. And I, I think about what that means for me and, and, the, and the massive implications of that. My, my follow-up question really should always be, Lord, how can I then dwell with you? How can I be with you, God? Knowing that nothing of me, nothing of me is what brings me into this relationship. How do I dwell with you? How do I dwell with you? One of the mistakes that we make in our, in our thinking of, of God and our relationship with him is that we, is that we think because because it's not of me, it's not of my flesh that I am justified. It's the work of Christ that I am justified. That means the actions of my life don't matter. But that's not it at all. That's the other side. On the one side, I say, it's, oh, it's, it's Jesus plus me. And on the other side, it's, it's, it's Jesus and, and nothing of my life matters. But what we see in Scripture, and, I, and I've used this phrase before, but what we see in Scripture is this, is this idea that we, that God does not require perfection from us in order to be saved? We're not God does not require perfection from us. 
But he demands it. He demands perfection from us. And not only does he demand it of us, but because of the work of Christ in our lives, we then desire it. It becomes the motivation of our lives. It becomes the change in the, in the drive that pushes us forward. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans when he talks about living by the flesh and living by the spirit. We no longer live by the flesh and desire the things of the flesh and desire our own, our own lives, but we desire the things of God. We desire the things of the spirit, the things of Christ. We desire to know the answer to this question. Who can be with you, God? And then David gives us this list, and, 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 and really, unfortunately, we do not make it very far before we find that we can't actually dwell with the Lord. Now, I think David is, is a, a, a fairly unique character in the Old Testament in, in the simple fact that he recognizes that it is God at work in salvation and not man. David is not a legalistic person in, in his in his following the law. He follows the law as best he can, but he does he knows that it's not the law that redeems him back to God. It's God's grace and mercy enacted in the law that does this. And so we can't misunderstand what David says here, but here's here he goes. Who can who can who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill, Lord? He says, He who walks blamelessly, I'm out. Blamelessly. Maybe we need to use the word as we used it with Paul a couple weeks ago when Paul says, you know, as to the, as the righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. And, I, and I, said, I said a couple weeks ago whenever we looked at that passage in Philippians that, that Paul wasn't actually suggesting that he was perfect, but rather where he fall, fell short, he knows that the law and, and the sacrificial system uh, rescued him and made him then blameless. And so perhaps we can think about it that way and we can go, oh, okay, well then my, you know, my, Apologies and my seeking after the Lord that that rights the wrongs. But David still had the law. David still had the sacrificial system. We we actually don't have that anymore because it's been fulfilled in Christ. But we can follow that understanding that because David could feel blameless, or Paul could feel blameless because of the sacrifices that he made, we, we also feel blameless because of the work of Christ. Because again, it's not my righteousness that God is looking at on the day of judgment, it's it's his. That he's bestowed upon me because of Christ. So it's good. He who does what is right. Huh. I thought we were going to make it through this list. Anybody in here? Can anybody in here claim for even a minute? I'll put my hand down. For even a minute that you, you've done all actions right in your life? No. I mean, simply by the fact that you are alive in this world... You have encountered situations where you, you really only have wrong choices because this world is so saturated in sin and brokenness that we can't actually live a life that is righteous, that is right. You know, kind of a scary thought is, is just look at where your clothes were made and perhaps think about who, who suffered because you wanted the clothes on your back. I'm not suggesting that we need to you know, make our own clothes and, and, and do anything like that. We, we simply can't get around it. Who speaks truth in his, in his heart. And, and David doesn't say speaks truth. He says speaks truth in his heart. Right? James, in the, in, the letter, in the letter in the New Testament, James, 
He says, in, in essence, he says, taming the tongue. If you could tame your tongue, you'd be pretty much a perfect person. He's put, he puts a lot of weight on, on our, our ability to, to just be good and righteous in just the things that we say. He, he, and he kind of says, we can't actually be that. Yeah, we can get close. But let me suggest that, that if you think that you're pretty good, you have a pretty good control over your tongue, go home, get a hammer and a nail, and miss the nail and hit your thumb. I bet you, bet you, even, you, even if you check yourself before you say anything, the point is not that you said something bad. The point is that your tongue is not in check. And, and David's not even saying, keep your tongue in check. He's going a step, he's going a step deeper, like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, he says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, if there's that, and by the way, he's not being gentle here. He's saying, if you have that momentary, momentary thought of, oh, that woman is, is attractive. Sorry, men. We fail because it's deep inside of us. Or, or if you hate your brother in your heart with no cause, you've committed murder. I mean, I, I care deeply about my brothers, but there's definitely been moments. And I'll be honest, same with all of you. And I know you feel the same. So what... So even before I have to put to put even my heart in check, my, my gut instinct desires in check. Yeah. The presence of God is not it's not something lightly to be taken. I'm gonna speed up here, not because these aren't as important, but because, because I don't necessarily think we need to go into depth in all of them to understand David's point here. He says, Who does not slander with his tongue? Who, who, who perhaps doesn't, when when our coworkers starting to talk bad about our boss, doesn't join in. Does who does no evil to his neighbor? You know, maybe you can say, oh, I don't know, I don't do evil things to my neighbor. But don't you think that Paul's setting up a pattern here that we should recognize that he's not necessarily saying, you know, I'm not going across the street and beating my neighbor to near death. Or take up a reproach against a friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Perhaps we can fit in this. Perhaps we can get there. People who are who are bad, who, people who are genuinely wicked people. I don't like those people because they're wicked. But how many of us have justified have justified the the actions of a person because whatever? Yeah, but. But if you knew about their upbringing. But who honors those who fear the Lord. I think this one hurts me more than more than almost any of the others in this list. So I think about people in my life who I've, who I've encountered, who, 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 I, who I strive to be like, right? I had a professor at, at Malone. His name was Dr. Maroney. And he was... He, so he was he was a professor for a, a couple of my classes, but he was also like my guidance counselor helped me along. And and I've actually never met another man who who genuinely cared about every conversation he had with his with his students, who genuinely cared about the life of of all those students that he had, who's just a loving and compassionate person who who loved the Lord. 
And I can I can honestly say there was never a moment when when I, you know in the countless times that I thought, man, I just I I want to be like that man. I want to grow to be like this man. And I never I never went and told him that. It's such a simple thing to do, and yet who swears to his own hurt. You know, a lot of times we 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 say things and, and we we put others others into the situation that perhaps we should take onto ourselves. You know, Jesus tells tells us in the New Testament, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no." I think what David is saying here is, "Let your yes be yes." So much so that if if your yes ends up being no, you're the one who suffers, and you don't back down from it. Right? Who does not change? who does not put out his money at interest. Interest in the Old Testament and interest today is a tool used by people to to enslave, right? There's money lenders on the the corner of of cities that have relatively poor populations. And the whole purpose is that you you go to that place a week before your paycheck comes and you, and you, uh, uh, you, you get an advance on your paycheck, right? The, the shocking thing about that is the moment you start doing that, the moment you're captured, you're into this vicious cycle where you're losing massive amounts of your your money. Now, I don't I don't think anybody in this room is employed by a company like that or or owns a company like that, but but we we do kind of seek this in, in other maybe more subtle ways, maybe not with the intent to capture and to enslave and debt. But because of our own our own greed and our own selfishness, we think we think about what can I gain if I'm going to help this person out? Who does not take a bribe against the innocent? And it says, "He who does this, he who does these things, shall never be moved." I don't want to necessarily call it a reward, but I, I couldn't really think of a better way to I couldn't really think of a better way to say it. The, kind of the reward of being with the Lord, sojourning in His tent. Dwelling on his holy hill is that we are immovable like he is. It is something that we then strive for, right? You, you know, as we look at this list, I, I very purposefully went through this list to try to show us that we don't we don't reach that, right? But but as we look at this list, I don't think that what David is trying to do to us is to is to is to crush us. And I don't think that that's what the law was ever supposed to do. I don't think it was supposed to crush us. It was supposed to illuminate for us and show us the, the actual the magnitude of the righteousness of the God that we serve. And, it's, and it shows us the magnitude and the, and, the, and, the, and the implication of what it means to be his followers. As believers, we are to be changed by the presence of God. And it's really kind of silly to think that we wouldn't be changed by the presence of God. And so we have to recognize, and I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves of how much God demands of us. And then and then strive for it. Strive for it. Like Paul says, to, to make it his own. Knowing, knowing all the while he hasn't made it his own, and, and we neither have made it our own. 
And so we seek to be better for the Lord out of worship, not, not because we need to be saved, because that's been done for us, but because we respond, we, we react, we desire. But the other thing that it does, the other thing that it does is that, is that it reminds us just how big the work of Christ is for us. It reminds us that, no, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a little sacrifice that Christ made for me. It was huge. In fact, it's so big that I can't even fully wrap my head around it because there are so many things in this list that I can't actually quantify. How many times have I, have I harbored hatred and frustration and, and annoyance? I don't have a clue. And every one of those compounds the sacrifice that Christ has made for me so that I might be free from that bondage. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? How much we have in the work of Christ? Not just because at one point we were justified, but because each and every single day of our lives from that moment, we continue to be changed, continue to be drawn, continue to be moved toward this. It's an act of worship to the Lord. We place our trust and our hope. Knowing the power of his work. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that as we see what you call us to, and we know our shortcomings in it, we thank you that, that we also know your victory in it through Jesus. Lord, we, we know that you have instilled in us a desire, a will, to seek, to know goodness and righteousness and even perfection in our lives. We know that you have given us that desire and given us the strength to work that out. We know that your son Jesus has paid it all so that we might be yours. so that we might be free and so that we might worship you. We thank you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' precious.